I'm Speedy Gonzalez, and I listen to the Jodcast when I go out for a run. Andale, andale, riba, riba, ha, ha. The Jodcast. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. With Megan Nargo, Adam Robinson, Jorn Field, Jen Gupta, Blaise Guzman, Ian Morrison, Mark Perber, and Paul Woods. The Jodcast. April 2011 edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I'm Liz Guzman. I'm a PhD student here in the University of Manchester. I'm doing planetary nebula research. And I'm here with Mark Perber, Jen Gupta, and Adam Avison. Hello. Hello. And the Spanish Jodcast from just today was my fault. <laughs> Sorry about that. So if anyone has downloaded the Jodcast late or is listening to this in years to come, the April 2011, April Fool, was to have a full Spanish episode, which was entirely organised and engineered and sorted out by Liz. So thank you, Liz. You're welcome. So yeah, we got everybody that speaks in Spanish um, in the whole building (laughs) and we did interviews and then a little bit of news and stuff. So if you understand a little bit, just get it and listen to it. It's quite good. I'd also like to say to anyone who downloaded the March Extra episode on time, apologies if we broke your MP3 players, it was all Mark's fault. I'm denying everything <laughs> on this one. I was putting the March Extra show up, and for reasons I won't go into, I noticed a bit of a problem after I'd made it live, and I was just fixing the problem. It just so happens that some of our listeners are so sharp that they'd already tried to download it, whilst I was in the middle of rectifying the technical issue. I'd like to point out that this was in no way my problem because I was halfway around the world in India. That so was the problem. That was, maybe that was the problem, yeah. I'm sorry, guys. So in the show this time, we will have a translation of those Spanish interviews that were in the April 4 edition, and we find out what you can see in the April Night Sky. But first, before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the expansion of the universe, a mature cluster found at high redshift, and the latest pictures of the moon's far side. Measurements of the expansion of the universe show that it is accelerating, an effect thought to be due to dark energy, something that counteracts the gravity of ordinary matter, but which has not yet been detected and whose actual nature is still unknown. Measuring the rate of this expansion and the expansion history, how the expansion rate has varied with time, is essential to our understanding of the evolution of the universe. This expansion rate has been measured in the distant universe using several different methods, including measurements from the cosmic microwave background, the echo of the Big Bang, and observations of thermonuclear supernovae. Predictions of the expansion rate in the local universe have been made using these results, but this requires various assumptions to be made about several unsettled questions in astronomy, such as the nature of dark energy and its effects on other material, the geometry of space itself, and the properties and distribution of neutrinos. Measuring the expansion rate in the nearby universe can therefore provide some information on these unsolved problems. But local measurements have their own challenges. Accurately determining distances is one major problem, with nearby distance indicators being used to calibrate more distant ones. Errors in nearby calculations are then propagated out to more distant objects, significantly increasing the errors in measurements of the expansion rate. Now, in a paper published in the Astrophysical Journal, a team led by Adam Rice at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore have measured this expansion rate more accurately than ever before. Their results use the fact that the absolute brightness of an object and its measured brightness as it appears to us here on the Earth can be used to calculate an object's distance. By carefully observing more than 600 examples of a type of star known as Cepheid variables, stars which vary in brightness with a period related to their absolute maximum brightness, located in the host galaxies of thermonuclear supernovae, exploding stars for which the maximum brightness can be determined, the team were able to produce an accurate distance ladder. This was then used to calculate the value of the Hubble constant, the number which describes the expansion rate of the universe. The number they calculated, 73.8 kilometres per second per megaparsec, fits well with previous measurements, but, due to the large number of stars observed, has the smallest uncertainty yet at just 3.3%, an improvement of 30% over previous results. This result, combined with recent data from other cosmology experiments, has implications for our understanding of the expansion of the universe. One idea, an alternative to the idea of dark energy, is the suggestion that the Milky Way may be located within a giant void, a relatively empty region of space some 8 billion light-years across. If we were located towards the centre of this bubble, galaxies accelerating away from us would be an illusion. 
but these new results are inconsistent with this hypothesis, still leaving the question of what dark energy actually might be. Following the Big Bang, it was some time before the universe cooled and began forming stars and galaxies. Over time, these young galaxies gradually assembled into clusters, continuing to evolve into the structures we see today, such as the well-known relatively nearby cluster in the constellation of Virgo. Studies of galaxies in such clusters show that the surrounding environment has a strong influence on a galaxy's morphology and star formation activity. But when in the history of the universe did such clusters actually form? The massive elliptical galaxies located at the centres of clusters are old and stopped forming stars a long time ago, although they continue to grow as material is pulled in from the surrounding cluster by a strong gravitational field. This infalling material largely destroys much of the evidence of how these galaxies evolved, so determining their history is difficult. One way round this is to observe more distant clusters, since we see them as they actually were far in the past, and use these observations to reconstruct a typical evolutionary sequence. A team of astronomers led by Raphael Gabat at Saclay in Paris have used infrared observations to locate a cluster of galaxies at a redshift of 2.1. Observed as a region containing many more compact red galaxies than would be expected by chance, the team also found strong X-ray emission from the same region. Such emission comes from the hot gas between galaxies within a cluster, and is a strong indicator of a gravitationally bound group of galaxies. By investigating the properties of the galaxies within this cluster, the group found that it is far more evolved than would be expected for a cluster at such a redshift, making it likely to be the most distant mature galaxy cluster found so far, implying that clusters dominated by massive elliptical galaxies and containing significant amounts of X-ray emitting gas were forming significantly earlier in the history of the universe than was previously known. And finally, as the Moon orbits the Earth, it always keeps the same face towards us because it is in what is known as a tidally locked orbit. It takes the same amount of time to rotate once on its axis as it does to travel once around the Earth. When the first images of the far side of the Moon were returned by the Soviet Lunar 3 spacecraft in 1959, the view was very different to what we are used to seeing on the near side. Rather than the large darker areas we see on the near side, areas known as lunar mare, or seas, the entire far side more resembles the lighter areas of the lunar highlands seen near the south pole of the near side. Exactly what the reason is for this dual nature of the lunar surface has been an ongoing puzzle. The mare themselves are thought to be the result of large impacts on the moon's surface. Incoming rocks hit the surface, fracturing the crust and allowing the molten basalt underneath to flow upwards through the cracks and fill in the impact basins, producing the darker coloured flat surface of the mare. That such features are seen mainly on one side of the Moon's surface and not the other is thought to be because the Moon's crust is thicker on the far side, making it harder for molten magma to erupt onto the surface. But the question remains, why is the far side crust thicker? Several presentations at the 42nd Lunar and Planetary Science Conference held in Texas during March attempted to answer this question. The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been imaging the Moon from orbit since 2009, and its wide-angle camera has been used to image the entire surface, at times when the sun was low in the sky, producing long shadows which can then be used to calculate the height of surface features and investigate the topology of the lunar landscape. The final global data set is yet to be completed, but a preview, released at the conference, shows the Moon's far side in spectacular detail. Thanks for that, Megan. So the criteria for being interviewed for the Spanish broadcast was uh, Liz sent out an email in Spanish that basically translated as, if you can read this, then we need you for the broadcast. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, we've got a number of Spanish speakers, both native and slowly learning, um, who responded. Thus, we had the interviews and the, the presenters for the, the April Fool's show. And when Paul and Liz went and did all the interviews, they, they first got them got the interviewees to speak in Spanish and then they pretty much repeated the uh, the interview again in English so they're, they're as close as you're going to get as to a literal translation probably better than sticking it in Google Translate <laughs> <laughs> and we got a decent cross-section of the research at Stoddard Centre for Astrophysics I think yeah yeah so here are those interviews hello everyone I'm Liz Guzman and I'm with Dr Paul Woods and we're going to do an interview with Dr Bob Watson who's an astronomer here in our Manchester University. He's going to talk a little bit about his work. Hello, Bob. Thank you for being with us. Hello. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, my work uh, is involved in the cosmic microwave background. This is the fossil background left over from the Big Bang. And my 
work is involved with the Planck satellite, which is observing this radiation uh, from space. And the study of this radiation is important because it tells you about the initial conditions in the primordial soup uh, left over from the, the Big Bang. Now, in this soup, we expect to see uh, the seeds of the large-scale structure in, that goes on to form galaxies, clusters of galaxies and planets due to the a action of gravity on these slightly over-dense regions of the very early universe. So my work in Planck involves in taking the, the raw data from the satellite and looking for little imperfections in the data acquisition system and identifying them and correcting them to make the data clean and usable to actually extract the scientific information from. Excellent. So that sounds really interesting. Um, what other results have come out of the Planck satellite recently? Well, in January, uh, a set of first release papers came out from Planck, uh, mainly concerned with uh, point sources and compact sources. Uh, one of those papers which I was involved in was concerned with anomalous microwave emission. Uh, this is a slightly strange emission that doesn't fit into the normal galactic foregrounds, which are generally due to electrons spiraling in, in a magnetic field, which causes the synchrotron, and then there's the free-free, which is due to interactions with ions with electrons. Those give you a foreground that's dominated on the, the low frequencies. Uh, on the high frequencies, there's another emission mechanism, which is due to thermal dust, but... Just in the middle, we find this excess emission, which correlates with the dust, but ha but is too strong for that, that particular frequency around about 30 to 40 gigahertz, uh, which are two bands which are used on the, the Planck satellite. What we think is happening is that this microwave anomalous emission is in fact due to extremely small dust grains, which are spinning at gigahertz frequencies. And what is happening, there is a very slight... Uh, charge on these dusts, dust grains, so as they spin they emit like a, a rotating antenna called dipole emission. The reason why this is, Planck was excellent for looking for this sort of emission is that the huge frequency range of Planck meant that we, for the first time we could successfully ex extract the thermal dust emission from the high frequency side and so show this peaked spectrum at uh, around about 20 to 30 gigahertz which falls sharply to the low frequency and high frequency side, uh, which is just basically the, the distribution of the spin frequency of these small dust particles. All right, so where is this emission coming from? Well, we, we're seeing it in, in uh, dust cloud, uh, on, in some of the denser dust clouds. So we, we, in the Planck paper, we saw two regions, the Perseus region, uh, which is one I'm mainly interested in. Another one is called Roofuki which is a, another large dust cloud that's towards the centre of the galaxy. And what what is this dust made of? I mean, I guess they must be pretty small particles to be spinning so rapidly. Yes, uh, these dust particles must only contain like a, a few hundred atoms in order for them to spin so fast. Uh, so we're sort of in the regime where between molecules and dust grains. Wow. Well, thank you very much, Bob. That's very interesting. And... Let us know the new releases of Planck after, yeah? Yeah, sure, we'll, we'll do. Thank you. My name is Paul Woods and I'm here with Liz Guzman and we're going to interview Dr. Cristobal Espinosa. Um, he's a Chilean astronomer and he's going to tell us a little bit about his work. So, what are you, uh, what are you working on at the moment, Cristobal? Um, at the moment I'm working on... Well, I work on pulsars, first of all. And... Uh, I, I'm continuing my work that I did during my PhD, which is about the spin evolution of pulsars. So we are trying to find out how pulsars slow down and how this process changes um, on time. So very young pulsars slow down very rapidly, but very old pulsars slow down slower. Um, Could you tell us a little bit more what's a pulsar? So a pulsar is a uh, is what remained after a supernova explosion. A pulsar is actually a neutron star, which is a very very small compact body, which is about the size of Manchester, 
but it's heavier than the sun and it's rotating very very fast and it emits pulses or what we see as pulses because it's, it works at something like a lighthouse so we see pulses when this light beam crosses the earth and we can measure the rotation and study how this evolves and many other things so why do they spin down they spin down because they have a very high magnetic field and uh, this is producing a, a break so the star is slowing down because of an electromagnetic breaking and uh, the problem is that this is a very simple model but it doesn't actually predict very well what we observe we observe completely different stuff we're trying to find out what's going on yeah so how does measuring the, the timing of these pulses give us information about the star itself so every time this light beam crosses the earth it means one rotation of the pulsar so we we write down the time that that pulse crossed the earth so we know how that pulsar was rotating at a particular time and we do that several times through years so we can actually monitor how the pulsar has been rotating and what's doing actually with a very high precision so i guess in general these pulses are very regular but are there occasions when this regularity breaks down yeah so very young pulsars are very messy they they don't rotate as smooth as you might think they they do many things and one of the things they do for example that which we study here it's these are called glitches which is when the pulsar suddenly spins up so it's, it's slowing down normally but then it's rotating faster than than before and uh, and after this it starts slowing down again continuing the the former trend and these are glitches and we believe they are caused because there's a super fluid inside the star which well, it's not slowing down as the crust of the star there is a crust and there is a interior superfluid and the superfluid keeps rotating faster than the crust so sometimes the superfluid is reminded to slow down and it does but then it has to give some angular momentum to the crust and we see it as a glitch how long are these glitches well nobody really knows but they are very short okay. so less than a minute and then suddenly the star is rotating faster wow and this only happen with young ones, or is it, do you see? Well, them? all pulsars can glitch, okay. but uh, young ones glitch more often. So, yeah, we have a lot of glitches for young pulsars, but not many uh, for old pulsars. Mm-hmm. The young pulsars also have the largest glitches and more spectacular ones. And so many of these pulsars are observed using the telescope out at Jodl Bank. So what is it about the, the, the Lovell telescope that makes it very good for observing pulsars? Well, it's big. Oh, the, the Lovell telescope is very big. It's one of the biggest, so that helps us a lot too, because it's a big collecting area. So we don't need to observe every pulsar for too long. And uh, in particular, the Lovell telescope is very good for us because we we have a lot of time to use it. So we actually currently we monitor about six hundred pulsars at Jodrell Bank, wow. and there is a big database which contains data for. 600 pulsars for about 20, um, for some pulsars even 40 years. Wow. So it's a very important database. And I think it's possible because we can use the telescope very regularly. Yeah. Are there any other telescopes in the world that you use for this monitoring? Yes, we, well, we don't use it directly, but we, yeah, well, we use it. We apply for time for parks. We use parks. Parks observes a lot of pulsars too. And there's also Green Bank. Effelsberg started observing pulsars now, and uh, the, the Italians are building a new telescope, which is going to observe pulsars too. And so I guess the Parkes telescope lets you observe the southern sky, right? So yeah. are, are the pulsars spread uniformly throughout the entire sky, or are they concentrated in one region? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Most pulsars are on the plane of the galaxy because they are relatively young compared to galaxy timescales. So they are young, so they are on the on the plane. And so Parks is a lot better than Diodel, because you can see the whole galaxy. But uh, millisecond pulsars, which is, uh, is an old population, 
uh, they are distributed pretty much uniformly on all the sky. And these millisecond pulses are actually very important for uh, pulsar timing arrays, which are trying to detect gravitational waves. Could you explain us a little bit more about gravitational waves and how are they going to detect them? Or? Well, this is just perturbations in the space and time due to the changes in the gravitational field. And uh, these waves, which is like the change of space-time uh, going through space, well, this passes Earth and everything, and if all pulses around the Earth, if we have a, an array of pulses, we can use them to detect that this wave passed through the pulsars, the Earth, and everything. So we believe that we, we should be able to find some correlation in the data using several pulses and detect uh, one of these waves, which would be amazing. Yeah. Cool. Wow. Well, thank you very much for the interview. It sounds really interesting. And yeah, let us know later how does it go <laughs> and we find the gravitational waves and everything. Sure. Hello. I'm Liz Guzman, and I'm here at the University of Manchester interviewing Dr. Jaime Pineda, who is a co-founder ESO Alma Fellow. He's here to tell us a little bit about his work and explain us what is his work about. Hello, Jaime. Hi, Liz. How's it going? Good. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So tell us, what are you working on at the moment? Hi, Liz. So I'm working especially on star formation. I uh, focus on the early stages of star formation, and I use a very wide range of uh, instruments or t and telescopes. So I go from millimeter wavelengths, centimeter wavelengths, up to near-infrared or optical. So I have a quite a wide background and also a, a wide interest on star formation topic. In star formation, I lately work on the, the early stages. And what I mean by that is, before we actually form a, a star, we can study some of these dense and cold, cold regions in the molecular clouds where we are actually forming stars right now. Because it's in these regions where we can see the initial stages and we can study the initial conditions for star formation. And in this case, we have been able to study the kinematics of these regions using dense gas, cold gas. And for that, we used observatories like the Green Bank Telescope in the, in the United States or observatories in like the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in the UK to study some of the, uh, these regions and use molecular lines to get information about the velocity and how much turbulence there is in, in the cold dense gas. What we found is that in fact, there is a strong change in the properties between what's the cloud, the molecular cloud, the uh, parental material, and what is the dense core, what's the initial material that's going to form a, a star. So what we find is that the amount of turbulence or motions, internal motions in the gas that's going to form a star, it's very, very small, it's very little you have very little turbulence and motions in this region, while the molecular cloud is highly turbulent, it's supersonic. So the question in how to take this turbulent material with high amount of velocities and then form some of these very small and quiescent objects, it's one of the most important tests to the star formation theories that are um, currently being proposed. And what we find is also that th this transition between the quiescent gas and the very turbulent gas is very sharp. So it's, it's a transition that we only found one or two years ago and was never observed previously. And we're able to put very strong limits on the size scale of this transition. And some of the theorists are working right now to try to reproduce these observations and try to see what are the uh, key parameters on their models that will allow them to reproduce the observation and therefore constrain their own theories. However, if we go even further, we can observe also regions that are uh, just forming one of these stars, meaning that the materials is still in falling to increase the mass of the protostar. And if we observe them in some of the for example, the space telescope, the Herschel Space Observatory, 
we don't see anything. We don't see anything in near infrared or mid infrared or even optical wavelength. And therefore, it means that we are finding objects that are just being born. They are just being created. And we can study the initial conditions of star formation because these objects have not been able to affect the cloud that much. So we can actually see what's the initial conditions for star formation. And we can also study the detailed processes that are involved in the star formation for these very early stages. So Wow, this is very interesting. Okay, so just explain us a little bit. These star forming regions, are they all over the galaxy or are they in some special places? So the star forming regions are mostly located in what they're called um, molecular clouds and they lie around usually in the uh, spiral arms and also in the galactic center. So it's in these regions that you see when you uh, take a look at the um, images of external galaxies where you can see very clear, nice spiral arms. It's because they are just forming stars. Some of the massive stars, they have just been born, and this is the regions that are forming stars in the galaxy. But luckily for us, we have very nearby star-forming regions, only a couple of uh, hundred light years from us. So we can actually do a very detailed study of the star formation process in these regions, and especially with the upcoming observatory, ALMA, we'll be able to take some of the highest angular resolution uh, observations ever taken for some of these regions, and we'll be able to study chemistry, we'll be able to to get information about uh, kinematics in some of these regions, and study the star formation process in in a way that's never been done before. So I think it's the, this new observatory, ALMA, is going to m- make us think about star formation uh, in, in a whole different way. And I th- that's, that's what we're looking for in the next couple of months, waiting for the uh, first call of proposals. So, Excellent. Sounds very, very interesting. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for the interview. And let us know what's going on with ALMA and all the new observations that you're going to get. Oh, thank you, Liz. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Bye. Hello, everyone. I'm Liz Guzman, and I'm with Dr. Paul Woods. We're doing an interview with the PhD student, Matias Vidal, which is going to tell us a little bit of his PhD work now. Hi, Liz. Well, I'm just first-year student here in Manchester, and I'm working on a topic which is related with cosmology and uh, galactic astrophysics at the same time. I'm studying the foreground emission to the CMB, the cosmic microwave background, which is this CMB is the fossil radiation, thermal radiation that came from the very early universe. And my work is focused on studying the emission from our own galaxy, uh, which is in the same frequency range as the, as the CMB. So in order to make the, all the cosmological studies that we want to do with, with this radiation, we need to characterize very precisely the galactic emission, which is in the same frequency range. And our own galaxy is emitting the, the dust and, and gas of, of the galaxy is emitting a lot in this frequency. So we need to subtract this emission in order to make all the, the CMB analysis. For instance, the, this very successful satellite WMAP, which leads us a lot of really, really important cosmological information. All that work is based on how well you can characterize the foreground emission because you need to subtract all this to get the, the real CMB data. What is this frequency range? In what uh, it's, in the, it's in the microwave part of the spectrum. It's from, say, 20 gigahertz till 100, which is close to one centimeter in, in wavelength. Yeah, but now I'm I'm focused mainly in in the foregrounds of the CMB because nowadays the the next challenge in CMB cosmology is studying the polarization of the CMB, which can give us information about the inflation, which is a period in the very very beginning of the universe, less than a second, when the universe was supposed to expand exponentially, really 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 fast. But it's a very important part of the of the theory of the of the Big Bang and how the universe was formed, it didn't have any observational proof 
and now with studying the, the polarization of the CMB, we can have some proofs of that. So that's now I'm, I'm focused on studying the emission of our own galaxy, but on polarization. Can you just explain what polarization is? Where yeah, does it yeah. come from? And yeah, uh, polarization is a kind of characterization of the, the light. Normal light, like, I don't know, sunlight, is composed of lots and lots and lots of different polarization modes. And if you put a, a polarization filter, for instance, these sunglasses, which has a filter, they only let you pass light which has uh, a particular polarization, say, linear polarization. And the CMB, in, in this case, has a particular polarization signal. And with telescope which can observe polarized light, like with telescope with a sunglass which observes this polarized light, we can see the, this information in this form of, of light. Right. So you mentioned that you can measure the polarization of the light, mm. and with that you're going to try to explain like the inflation model of yeah. the Big Bang. How are you going to measure, how, how do you do the measurements with the... Okay, so the telescope has, they observe linear polarization uh, at the same time. And the thing is that there is a, a polarization pattern in the CMB, which is called B-modes. It's, it's just a, a, a way of when you observe the, the CMB, and if these B-modes uh, are there, it's a kind of pattern that you see in the, in the, in the maps of the CMB in polarization. And with the telescope, we create these maps in polarization and trying to search statistically for, for these patterns, these B-modes, which are patterns in the, like circular patterns in the, in the maps. So what does this pattern mean? These patterns are the signature of gravitational waves that were originated during the inflation. So the universe expanded really, really fast at that time, and that creates a, a gravitational wave background, which is like all the universe is oscillating because of this really, really big inflation expansion of the universe. And these gravitational waves let a signature in the CMB, in the polarization of the CMB. So we trying to observe a big patch in the sky and search for these patterns that are produced by the gravitational wave. And that will be like a really, really important proof to to inflation. And, and will be the only one at this at this time. Because we can prove energies like, that are like much, much higher than those energies that you can get in any other astrophysical environment or even particle accelerator. So the, the CMB is like you're studying a moment in the universe where the universe was really, really young and the, the energy and the density was really high, much higher than anything that we can see or test right now. So it's like we're studying really, really diffuse emission and it's good because we, we are using that to get to a moment in the universe where all was really, really energetic and dense. Wow. It's very, very interesting. Thank you very much yeah. for the interview. Okay. Let us know later if you find how many two modes <laughs> did you find and okay. what happened. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you. Thanks for that, Paul and Liz. And now we get on to the part of the show where we talk about all the other stuff that we can't fit in anywhere else. So what have we got this time? Yes, so April is the Global Astronomy Month. So it's organized by Astronomers Without Borders and they have lots of different events. So if you want to check the website, um, they have on the 9th of April they have a global star party and the week from the 10th to the 60th they have a lunar week so sounds really interesting the website we will put in the show notes because um, it's really long and if we read it out there's too many dashes and things that it just doesn't make sense yes and if you're not all parted out from the uh, star party on the 9th from that on the 12th of April um, it's Yuri's night so on the 12th of April in 1961, the first manned space flight took place and Yuri Gagarin was aboard Vostok 1. Then, sort of, luckily, 20 years later, on April 12th, NASA launched uh, the Columbia Space Shuttle. It was meant to be a few days earlier, which is why I say luckily, not... Like, <laughs> Yay, they managed to not, spell the yeah. space shuttle. <laughs> yeah, I think they were intending to do it, it wasn't. 
Uh, and then 20 years after that, so 2001, was the first Yuri's Night um, party, which saw a rolling party starting in Sydney and uh, sort of rolling out across the world to celebrate man's space flight. Um, and then now it's 10 years after that. Well, it will be on April 12th. Um, so there's more parties scheduled. Um, so the parties take different forms in different places. Some are more formal, some are look like clubs from some of the pictures I've seen. Uh, <laughs> but they've all got a bit of a, a space theme. I think I prefer a, a quieter night, but, you know, uh, I'll, I'll check out what's happening near me. And you can do that at yurisnight.net. Uh, which has loads of information about the event and what's going on. If you check their events page, the, you can find the closest one to you. So go. And the link will be in the show notes. Coming back to modern spaceflight, on April the 19th, NASA is intending to launch the penultimate space shuttle mission ever, the second to last one. And it's going to be the space shuttle Endeavour, which has been flying for 19 years it's going to go to the ISS and deliver a few bits and bobs. Among them is something called the Alpha Magnetic Spectrometer. And this is actually a particle physics experiment in space. So that's particle astrophysics or astroparticle physics. Let's or... put the astro first. Astroparticle. Yeah. Okay, astro-particle. they are astroparticles after all. <laughs> it's looking for unusual types of matter by measuring cosmic rays. And cosmic rays are is quite a broad term covering any sort of energetic particle that arrives from space and generally not quite sure where it's come from. Uh, One of the things that they're going to look for is antimatter. So they're hoping that anti-helium atoms might actually interact with the detector, although it's fairly unlikely. If they do find even just one anti-helium atom, it would tell us that there's probably a lot more antimatter out there and possibly around us than we think, because it doesn't look our observations as though there's much out there at all and it's something that's mystified theoretical physicists for quite a long time if they don't find any antimatter then they'll be able to place a limit on how much there actually is another particle they're hoping to see the signature of is called a neutralino that's a theoretical supersymmetric particle and if neutralinos exist they should be interacting and causing quantities of other charged particles and antiparticles to be seen And these experiments are rather difficult to do within the Earth's atmosphere, which is why they've taken this up to the space station. And when Endeavour comes down for the last time, it will have travelled over 100 million miles in total in space. Whoa. And then that'll leave just one more shuttle mission, which is supposed to happen in the summer. Coming back down to Earth, uh, the UK's National Astronomy Meeting is taking place from the 17th to the 21st of April in Clondidno in North Wales. Woo. So you can tell who's going from who just said <laughs> Mark is not going. So regular listeners will know that this is uh, the largest meeting of UK professional astronomers that happens. It happens every year. And most years, the Jogcast goes along armed with our recorders and try to get as many um, interviews as possible. So expect our annual bumper editions to come out in May. There are also some public talks going on. So on the Monday, on the 18th of April, there are two talks which I assume are in Welsh because the titles are in Welsh and therefore I have no idea what they're about, but that should be interesting. And on the Wednesday, on the 20th of April, Dr Lucy Green, who many people will recognise that name because she's been on TV quite a lot recently, um, she'll be giving a talk about the sun. We don't have specific details because they don't seem to be on the website yet, like location and times, but we'll advertise those on Twitter uh, once we know that. And if you're in the area, uh, get in touch because we always like meeting new Jodcast listeners and maybe we could have a mini Jod pub in Wales. Yay! (laughs) Boo, I'm still not going. (laughs) (laughs) And finally, we should point out that the new Jodrell Bank Discovery Centre is nearly finished. Um, All the buildings are complete and the landscapers and exhibition builders are just finalising things. So hopefully the new centre will be open in mid-April. We don't know a date yet, but keep an eye on the website for details. And I'm quite excited about that because in all my time at Manchester, George Bank's been operating the um, reduced visitor centre. So they had some exhibitions up and 3D theatre, but they'd knocked down the old planetarium and the old visitor centre by the time I got here. So I'm looking forward to this. I remember the old visitor centre. It was very good. I went on school trips there, but that was back in the late 80s or early 90s (laughs) so it's about time because that was quite an inspiring place it's about time that it got back to uh, maybe being even better than what it has ever been before and also on the website they've been keeping a development diary so you can go and have a look at some of the pictures of the new buildings and 
the construction and it, it does look really good. So mid-April, keep an eye out, hopefully in time for the Easter holidays, I guess. And if you have been to the visitor centre in the past few years before it got knocked down, you may have seen a video featuring Ian Morrison, who is here now to tell us what's going to be in the night sky this month. The night sky for April 2011. Over the last few months, I've been recommending a few books to help you find your way around the sky. Jenny Gupta, who is one of the Jogcast team, has just come back from India, and in a bookshop she found a little book, not that expensive, called Pocket Guide to Stars and Planets. It's actually a book that I wrote uh, about seven years ago now. It's only about £10 from Amazon, so it's not too expensive, but it treats the North and Southern Hemisphere equally, in that the quarterly star charts, the two of them, North and Southern Hemisphere, and it includes details about 50 of the best astronomical objects to observe in the whole of the sky. So it doesn't ignore the Southern Hemisphere. In fact, that book's been quite popular in places like Australia and New Zealand just because of that. Those 50 objects I call the Astronomical A-List. I believe it's just been translated to Spanish, actually. So if you are interested in quite a cheap little book to help you find your way around, then Amazon has it for around the £10 mark. OK, well, what can we see in the sky? Well, that lovely region with Orion, Taurus and Gemini are now setting towards the west as evening falls. And reasonably high in the south is the constellation of Leo the Lion, one that actually looks a little bit like what it might be. Uh, I think of those lions in Trafalgar Square on their haunches. The brightest star, basically his front knees, is called Regulus. And the sickle, it's sort of a back-to-front question mark, sometimes called a sickle, makes up his mane and his head. There's a nice region of fairly bright galaxies just below his nether regions. And with a telescope, if you actually align it on Regulus and sweep gently eastwards, you should perhaps come across them. Just to the rear of Leo, between Virgo and Coma Berenices, two fairly faint constellations, in fact Virgo has got a bright star spiker in it, is what we call the realm of the galaxies, where there are lots and lots of galaxies, many of them in the Messier catalogue. And these are ones that you can see given a good, clear, dark, transparent sky with a relatively small telescope. As we'll see, Saturn is currently in Virgo. A fairly bright star is up to the left, and that's Arcturus in Bootes. And above Leo, looking fairly high in the sky, is the constellation of Ursa Major, the Great Bear, with, of course, the stars making up what we call the plough, the Americans call the Big Dipper. If you've got a small telescope, have a look at the middle star of the three that make up the handle. That's actually a double star, Alcor and Mizar. But if you look in detail, you'll see that Mizar is itself a double. So it looks rather good. And there's a fourth little star in the field of view as well. So that's a nice thing to spot. So perhaps not the most dynamic sky in the evening. Of course, as the night passes on, then we get the stars Vega in Lyra, Deneb in Cygnus beginning to rise, and they will basically form part of what's called the Summer Triangle with the star Altair in the constellation the Eagle. So not a bad time to observe, and of course we have to wait up a little bit later at the present time in order to do so. Well, what about the planets? Well, Jupiter passes behind the Sun on April the 6th. That's called superior conjunction. So obviously you won't see it in the early part of April. But at the very end of April, it will rise shortly before the Sun, and you might be able to glimpse it with binoculars just above the eastern horizon. Its magnitude will then be about minus 2.1, angular size about 33 arc seconds. It's not really the best month to observe it, but I'll come back to it in a highlight towards the end. Well, what about Saturn? This is really one of the two best months to observe Saturn in its current apparition. It's now an evening object rising before sunset at the beginning of April. It actually reaches opposition on the night of April the 3rd, 4th. That means it'll be due south at about 12 midnight universal time. So that means it's highest in the sky. 
you haven't got to wait up too long to observe it well. And I, I observed it from the Isle of Wight recently, and I could make out Cassini's division, which is quite a nice thing to see. The magnitude is about plus 0.4. Its brightness decreases a touch to plus 0.5. That's actually because the rings, surprisingly, although they're generally now opening out, from being almost edge-on a year or so ago, they're basically, because of the Earth's motion, closing slightly this month from about 8.8 degrees to the line of sight, dropping down to 7.8 during the month. There's a plus sign there that actually indicates that we're seeing the Northern Hemisphere. And the rings span an angular size of 44 arc seconds, which is about double the planet's disk. As well as seeing the Cassini division, a small telescope should easily show you Titan, which is Saturn's brightest moon, and given good conditions, other moons as well. Mercury. Well, Mercury passes in front of the Sun on the 9th of April. That's called inferior conjunction, so you're not going to see it then. But again, rather like Jupiter, it reappears in the dawn, very low down in the east, with a magnitude of plus 0.9. And again, I'll come back to that towards the end. Well, Mars has now passed behind the Sun and emerges in the pre-dawn sky towards the middle of April. The trouble is the ecliptic seen in the morning in the east is at a very shallow angle to the horizon. So even though its angle from the Sun is increasing, it still has a very low elevation. You'll need a good low eastern horizon and a pair of binoculars. Obviously, make sure you don't use your binoculars once the Sun has risen. This month it has a magnitude of plus 1.2, reasonably bright, an angular size of just four arc seconds, so you're not going to see any details. But again, we'll come back to that at the very, very end. Well, Venus has been a wonderful pre-dawn object shining brightly in the sky before dawn. Magnitude of minus 3.9, that means it's pretty bright. It's the brightest thing you can see in the sky, save for the moon, so that's not a bad thing to look for. Again, it's not that high now above the eastern horizon because of the angle of the ecliptic to the horizon. As it's moving, as it is, towards the far side of the sun, its angular size is reducing. It drops from 13.2 arc seconds down to 11.7 during the month. And you might think, well, that will mean it becomes less bright. Because as it does so, more of that visible disk is being illuminated by the sun. So in fact, the actual apparent magnitude stays constant. OK, well, there are the planets. Let's just finally have a look at some of the highlights of the month. Well, I've already mentioned that Saturn is really coming to its best time. It's in the constellation Virgo. The rings now 8 degrees from the line of sight, on average, are now opening out. But it won't be until 2016 that they'll be at their widest again. So each year, we'll have a better look of the ring system of Saturn. You should, with a small telescope, and I was able to the other day, see some of the bands on the surface and easily show, as I said, Titan. If you've looked at Saturn with a small telescope, move just a little bit to the right, because it's not far from the star Gamma Virginis in Virgo. It's called Porima. Porima is a double star. It's made up of two identical stars, each of magnitude 3.5. Now, way back in 1919, they were separated by six arc seconds, very easy to split into two with a small telescope. But by about 2005, we say it's at periastron, the pair was so close they could barely be split. But they're now opening out again, and this month they should be 1.7 arc seconds apart, which means that given good seeing, which means that the atmosphere is not too turbulent, with a small telescope you should be able to show that there are actually two stars there and not one. So, when you've looked at Saturn, why not look at Porima? After sunset on April the 5th, you have a chance of seeing what I call, what is called, the old moon in the new moon's arms. And you may see, if it's clear, a very thin, two-day-old crescent moon low in the west. Assuming, as is quite usual, there's a fair bit of cloud cover on the Earth, then so-called Earthshine will light up the remainder of the Moon's surface, and you'll see it very faintly. Binoculars should show it to you pretty well. If you care to put night sky, either as one word or two, into Google, you'll come to the night sky page that I write for the Jodrell Bank website each month, and I've actually included an image that I took of the old moon in the new moon's arms precisely one month earlier, when there was a two-day-old moon. 
I took one image exposed for the new moon and a much longer image exposed for the old moon and I've actually combined them together into one. And it's not a bad picture. I'm quite pleased. I've never seen anything quite like it. So have a look at that perhaps. If you're looking at the moon with a telescope, one thing to look for, April the 11th is actually a good night, is called the Alpine Valley. There are some mountains, the Apennines, that run around the edge of Mare Imbrum. They go up to a rather nice, very circular, not surprising, but dark crater called Plato. And if you look at the mountains just to the right of Plato, as seen in the sky, perhaps not upside down, then you should see a cleft and that's called the Alpine Valley. It's about seven miles wide, 79 miles long. And in fact, in a really, really good image, you can see a thin rill that runs along its length. That's quite a challenge to observe. I've never actually seen it. But over the next couple of nights, the dark crater Plato and the young crater Copernicus will come into view. It's a very interesting part of the moon to observe. We do have a meteor shower this month. They're called the Lyrids. It's the night of the 22nd and 23rd of April. To be frank, it's not one of the best of the meteor showers. Typically, you only see perhaps 15 per hour, but they have been seen for at least 2,600 years. And they're actually dust particles that uh, come from the comet Thatcher. But that was discovered in 1861, so it's nothing to do with our prime minister in the past. Occasionally... We actually passed through a fairly dense clump of particles. It happened in 1982, and there was a pretty good shower with about over 90 meteors seen. So it's worth having a look at. Sadly, this year, the peak of activity on the night of the 22nd, 23rd of April is only a couple of days or so after the full moon. So that doesn't help. But I have looked, and the moon is pretty low in the south. So I think by the time that you really want to have a good look, which is sort of about 2 o'clock in the morning, when uh, Lyra, Vega are high in the sky, you may have a chance of seeing them. And finally, at the very end of the month, I keep referring to a highlight to do with all these planets. OK, we can see Saturn in the evening, but we would have a chance on the last two mornings of the month, the 29th and the 30th, to see four planets lined up in the pre-dawn sky along with a crescent moon. And again, I've given a little picture of that on the Night Sky website. You'll certainly need binoculars, and uh, Jupiter will only just be above the horizon. Of course, that's relatively bright. Mars is very close to Jupiter, and then you've got Mercury and Venus. So you can see four planets and a crescent moon together. That's going to be a tough one to photograph if it's clear. I shall certainly have a try, because it could be a very nice photograph. So, a fair number of things to look for this month. I do wish you well. Thanks for that, Ian. So now, for the Southern Sky, we have John Field. Welcome to the April Jodcast from Carter Observatory in Wellington, New Zealand. Autumn has arrived in the Southern Hemisphere. Over the last month, our daylight hours have continued to get shorter as we pass the autumnal equinox and will continue to do so until the time of the winter solstice in June. One advantage of the longer nighttime hours means we can start our stargazing at a much more reasonable time. Low after twilight in the west with only his head marked by the V-shaped cluster called the Hyades and with a bright foreground star of Deborah marking one of his eyes is Taurus the bull. The Pleiades marking the back of the bull will be lost in the twilight sky during April and will not appear until the morning sky in June, around the time of the southern hemisphere winter solstice. One of the zodiac constellations, Taurus sits along the path that the sun, the moon and the planets move along as observed from Earth. The sun will move in front of the background stars of Taurus during a period from May the 13th to the 21st of June. The less bright of the two eyes, Epsilon Tauri, was discovered in 2007 to have a planet seven times the mass of Jupiter and with an orbital period of 1.4 Earth years orbiting it. There are 20 stars brighter than magnitude 5 in our night sky known to have planets orbiting them. A number of these are visible in our southern night sky. The neighbouring zodiac constellation Gemini's second brightest star Pollux shining at magnitude 1.15 also hosts a planet estimated at 2.7 times that of Jupiter. Only slightly fainter than Pollux is the bright star Thomahole, the mouth of the fish in the constellation Pisces Australis, the southern fish. 
the star is known to have at least one planet orbiting it. This planet was the first to be directly imaged by the Hubble Space Telescope in 2008. There is a disk of debris orbiting around the star and it is possible that other planets may be forming within this disk. Gemini is at home to the open star cluster M35. This open cluster is about the same size as a full moon and at magnitude 5.3 should be visible to the unaided eye from a dark location and easily seen in binoculars or a small telescope. The cluster is estimated to be 2,800 light years away and consists of over 300 stars covering an area of 24 light years. Gemini represents the heavenly twins Castor and Pollux who travel with Jason and the Argonauts on his quest to discover the Golden Fleece. As Taurus sets in the west, our winter constellation Scorpius rises in the east. The brightest star in Scorpius is Antares, the rival of Mars, shining at magnitude 1. Depending on the list, it is either the 15th or the 16th brightest star in the night sky. Antares is a red supergiant star about 600 light years away and has a diameter of up to 800 times that of our Sun. It is estimated to be 65,000 times brighter and with a mass of up to 18 times greater. Although the core of the star is many times hotter than our star, the Sun, due to the expansion of its atmosphere, the surface has dropped to a much cooler temperature, giving it a reddish hue. This colour gave its name, the rival of Mars. Antares is a binary star system and the companion, although bright at magnitude 5.5, is difficult to observe due to the brightness of Antares. Normally a telescope of 150mm or 6 inches is needed to observe the companion. But occasionally the Moon can occult Antares and this can allow smaller telescopes to observe this star whilst Antares is hidden. Some observers report it as having a green tint, but this is due to an optical illusion as the star is actually a blue supergiant. To Māori in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Antares is known as Rehua, and it marks the eye of Te Matā'a Māui, the hook of Māui. The curve of the scorpion's body and stinger are seen as the curve of the hook, and the distinctive triangle made by the stinger becomes the tip of the hook. In Māori mythology, this was a hook that Māui, a great hero, used to pull the North Island of New Zealand up out of the ocean. The North Island of New Zealand is known as Te Ika of Maui, the fish of Maui. The hook crosses a wide and bright part of the galaxy, and it's in this region that we look directly towards the centre of our Milky Way, 30,000 light years away. With such a high concentration of stars, this region is a prime area for observing gravitational microlensing events. A microlensing event is based on the gravitational lens effect. A massive object, the lens, will bend the light of a bright background object, the source, and this can generate multiple distorted, magnified and brightened images of the background source. As the two objects move into alignment, a bell-shaped light curve is formed. If a planet orbits around the lensing star, then an additional peak will appear on the curve. A collaborative team of astronomers from New Zealand and Japan are running a microlensing program at Mount John Observatory, above Lake Tekapo in the central South Island of New Zealand. Using a 1.8 metre telescope and a wide-field CCD camera, they study the dense regions around the sky on a regular basis to spot the slight change in brightness that may herald a lensing event. Once a potential event is observed, a wide group of amateur and professional astronomers are notified and they can follow the light curve. This potentially allows 24 hours of observation of the event and means a short period peak of the planet can be observed. To date, 14 stars in Scorpius have been discovered to have planets orbiting them, but all are much fainter than magnitude 5. In our evening sky, we have only one planet visible. Rising in the east is the planet Saturn. Sitting in the constellation of Virgo, Saturn appears as a bright yellow star. The most distant of the visible planets, Saturn takes about 30 years to complete one orbit around our star, the Sun. Named after the father of the gods in Greek mythology, it is sometimes associated with Cronus, the father of time. The rings surrounding Saturn are visible in small telescopes with a magnification of 20 times or greater. The first person who observed the rings was Galileo in 1610. Today the rings are known to be made mostly of water ice with small amounts of other materials. Although the rings are very wide, they are in fact very thin, currently estimated to be 20 metres thick. The rings are made of a large number of individual rings, and some of these areas are denser or thinner than others. The gaps between some rings are due to the interaction of the gravitational pull of Saturn, its moons and material within the rings themselves. Saturn has a similar axle tilt to the Earth, and so it experiences seasons. An effect of this tilt is that the rings sometimes appear as a thin ring surrounding the planet, or at other times they may appear tilted and far more open. This tilting of the rings alters the brightness of the planet and its appearance in a telescope. Saturn's largest moon, Titan, also visible on a small telescope, was discovered in 1655 by Christian Huygens. This moon is similar in size to Mercury, but is about half the mass. 
Titan is surrounded by a dense atmosphere of nitrogen, methane and hydrogen. This composition is similar to what we think the Earth's atmosphere was like after it formed. Venus is still visible in our morning sky as the morning star. The other bright planets, though, are still too close to the sun to be easily seen. Many thanks for listening into our Jodcast, and we hope you have clear skies and great observing. Thanks for that, John. And now it's time to round up your feedback. So first up, we've had quite a lot of posts since the last show, actually. I think our pleas for posts have finally paid off. Um, so first up, we've got one from Ken Walzak. I have no idea how to pronounce your surname. Um, he's at the Adler Planetarium in Chicago, and he actually emailed us a while ago when I said that I wanted a signed copy of the Hanny's Verwerp comic, and because Chris Lintot is at the Adler Planetarium at the moment, and he's followed through and sent me a copy of the comic signed by Chris, so thank you very much for that. Um, he also, as I said, sent us a postcard with the Planetarium on it, which is very nice, saying, Keep up the amazing work. Your podcast is the best, deepest one out there. I can't thank you enough. I love that kind of feedback. It makes <laughs> me all happy inside. <laughs> We've had a postcard from Switzerland, Marek Michik, who lives right next to the Sirius Sternwarte Planetarium, got in touch with us and his postcard has pictures of the planetarium and what you can see through the telescope there. And he says it's well worth a visit. So we got another postcard from Mike Kelly from Caprun in Austria. Uh, he has been skiing there and he just said that the sky is really clear and he has been Cyrus and lots of stars. Thank you for that. We've also had a postcard from Susan Kelly uh, showing the wonderful Sydney Opera House in the Harbour Bridge. And um, she's also sent us a real-life actual Jod pic of her in a Jodcast t-shirt stood in front of a nice outdoor bathing area in Sydney, which is making me very jealous because it's a lovely city of Sydney. If this is the same Susan that's considering an online master's in astronomy, uh, we wish her the best of luck with that. And if not, ignore that. But thank you very much for the picture and the postcard. <laughs> And if you're in Sydney, I can recommend going to the Sydney Observatory at one end of the Harbour Bridge, because that's really good. And it's a bit like a twin of Greenwich. And just down the hill from that, there's the Lord Nelson pub, which I can also recommend. <laughs> <laughs> Moving swiftly on. <laughs> on the forum, there's uh, been a very important discussion started by Earth Units, following on from the March Extra edition. He wants to know, if we were going to fill the Lovell Telescope with ice cream, what flavour would it be? And, well... For me, that's an obvious answer. It would obviously be mint choc chip. Uh. No, see, I would try and get every flavour of ice cream in there. And then Neopo everyone's happy. Neopo Neapolitan, kind of. A kind of Neapolitan, but with everything. That's everything. not every flavour Neapolitan. Yeah, so Neapolitan's <laughs> only got three, but I would, I would continue it. Just a big Knickerbocker glory, then. <sighs> I assume the lover would break before we could fill it completely with ice cream. Well, how much snow did it get in over uh, winter? Someone told me, and I can't remember, it was a ridiculously large tonnage of snow was in the dish at some point. So even that amount of ice cream would be amazing. <laughs> and it, clearly the correct answer to this is uh, Ben and Jerry's fish food. Over on email, we had a Jod pic sent in from Bill Hay, who visited the Keck telescope while on holiday in Hawaii. So we'll put that up on Flickr and on Twitter. I should say, if you want to take part in Jodpick and get some interesting photos of yourself in a Jodcast t-shirt but don't have one yet, uh, get in touch with me. So my email address is jgupta at jb.man.ac.uk or you can send me a tweet. I'm jen underscore gupta on Twitter. And speaking of Twitter, thanks for all the retweets and follow Fridays. Uh, Ryan Robertson is listening. said he was listening to the Jodcast March Extra Edition. A nice relaxing afternoon for him. Andy Oliver uh, tweeted, Jogcast Extra Show was great. Looking forward to the next one. So if you want to uh, tweet about the Jogcast, could you please use the at Jogcast so we can keep track of this? Uh, if you use hashtags or just the word Jogcast, uh, it doesn't last as long on Twitter and we can't quick as easily follow what's going on. Uh, and just... we're quite lazy at getting our feedback on Twitter. Well... <laughs> yeah, you're the one that has access to the Jogcast account. <laughs> and on Facebook, there's nothing. So thanks for that. <laughs> it's okay. We like the real physical post. That's more than makes up for it. And as we do love getting posts so much, you can find our address on the Jodcast website. Or if you want to use the internet to get in touch with us, you can do so via the website at www.jogcast.net in forum at forum.jodcast.net 
On Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jogcast. On Facebook at jogcast.net slash Facebook. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jogcast. And on Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jogcast. And that brings us to the end of the show. So first of all, I'd like to say a massive thank you to Liz for sorting out our April Fool episode. I hope everyone enjoyed it and wasn't too <laughs> confused by it. I also also hope some people actually understood it. That would be nice. Yeah. Um, thank you to our interviewees for being interviewed twice in two languages. So thank you, Bob, Christabel, Hamy and Matthias. The intro-outro was written by David Alt and recorded by John Bell. The editors for the show were Jen Gupta, Liz Guzman and Mark Perver. And the producers, jointly, were Jen Gupta for the English version and Liz Guzman for the Spanish. So until next time... Jordan. Bye. Bye. Adios. Bye. <laughs>